Dr. Titus Kennedy is a professional field archaeologist, an adjunct professor at Biola University, a research fellow at Discovery Institute, and has been a consultant, writer, and guide for history and archaeological documentaries and curricula. He currently directs archaeological projects in Bible lands, and he's researched and photographed artifacts from all around the world. Dr. Kennedy, it's so great to have you with us on Takeaways. Oh, thank you for having me, Kurt. Man, you just don't look like the archaeologist that I was expecting when I met you. I mean, I'm thinking Indiana Jones, a guy covered in mud, uh, you know, uh, carrying a, a, you know, a backpack and an axe. But you really are a real-world archaeologist. Yeah, maybe if you came out on the site, there'd be more of that. <laughs> the pickaxe, backpack for sure. Some, some dirt. So, so have you ever found yourself as an archaeologist, uh, like Indiana Jones, like, like trapped in an ancient chamber, dodging blow darts, trap doors, and giant rolling boulders? No, nothing quite that dramatic. <laughs> They've been in a few pretty interesting caves, really tight spots, but it's, it's bugs usually, not snakes or you know, mud, right. not flying poison darts. So more fear factor than Indiana Jones. <laughs> Yeah, a little, little more realistic survival show type of thing than Hollywood movie. Okay. Well, this is so fascinating to me. I mean, I love hearing about archaeological digs. And, and I'm, I'm curious, what got you into this field of work? Was your dad an archaeologist? Yeah, he was not. Uh, he actually was into academics and had studied some archaeology and history in college. But for me, it was essentially a, a love of history and science and languages. And then I was introduced to archaeology in the fifth grade. I didn't even know it existed before that. When I read this book about the excavation of Troy, which was one of the really early archaeological digs, and you know, it's, they connected it to the Iliad where that war is discussed. Mm. So then I found out, oh, we don't just get this information from old texts, you know, old history books. But there are some people who actually go out and dig these cities up and find new objects and new buildings and give us more information. So I, I became a little more interested in that. And then I discovered later on as I continued to do more reading that there's a lot of archaeology connected to the Bible. And I was very, very interested in that and started reading more books on it and decided by the end of high school that this was something I wanted to try to study. I didn't know what would happen as far as career, but I, I gave it a try and just kept on going, and now that's what I do. So many people read their Bible and they say, yeah, I believe this, uh, I go to church, I, I, I love it, but they're not really thinking of the importance of digging stuff up to verify that this is true. Why is archaeology important to help us have confidence in what the Bible says? Well, archaeology provides us some tangible physical evidence to demonstrate the reliability of the Bible. Uh, it's, it's not just philosophical arguments. It's not today's or yesterday's interpretation of, of a certain scientific principle. But you might have this artifact that's got an inscription on it that states the person's name and title and location. And that exact information may be in a story from the Bible and then it tells us, oh, this person is attested by outside evidence from the time and place that they lived. So it's really helpful, I think, in just showing realistic evidence to people that you can still see 
and doesn't require, usually, so much interpretation. Do you think it makes a difference that you actually believe the Bible as a Christian when you go dig stuff up? Does it help or hurt your archaeological credibility based on the fact that you have a biblical worldview and you believe that it's true? So I think it helps because we have a Bible that can be used as a guidebook. Uh, even, even secular scholars who think a lot of the Bible is myth, they acknowledge that geographically it's very useful. So it helps us to locate sites and to identify mm -hmm. sites. But you can also use it to help you sort of what you might expect to find. So you, you might not be taken off guard completely and, and it can help guide your excavation. And then when you do find things, it can help you interpret what that is because although some artifacts are very clear or buildings are clear, other times it's not so definitive just from the archeological material. So it really helps to have ancient texts, the Bible and others to give us the, the fuller picture and interpretation. Uh, your second question, it can cause issues in academia, yes, because currently in the modern West, being a person who believes the Bible is historical text is not a popular or mainstream position. And so uh, other, other scholars may think that it's, it's very naive or passe to have that viewpoint. And so you started digging things up and to see, because you thought it was cool and you, you weren't really thinking of it as a career, but now you're dedicating your life to this work. What, what, what made you decide, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life? I really like the detective issue aspect of it. You're always trying to figure out mysteries and find new things. And I think that the information that we can discover and the, the mysteries perhaps that we can solve are helpful to people. When we apply archeology span to the Bible, I sort of see two main categories. And the first is what we've talked about, demonstrating the reliability of the Bible or, or at least certain sections within it, depending on what we're, we're digging. So bolstering the credibility of the Bible or maybe giving somebody confidence that what they're reading is true. But the second aspect is it just helps us to understand the ancient world better huh. and, and the biblical world better, the context in which those things are written. Because sometimes there are words that we don't know exactly what they mean or customs or what did this building look like? How is this illustration supposed to communicate something to us? If, if we don't know what any of that looked like, then it makes it very difficult and we might project our modern viewpoints onto it and get it wrong. Many people say stuff like uh, seeing is believing, and that's one of the cool things about archaeology is you're, you're seeing it, you're digging it up, and you're going, here it is, here's the inscription. But archaeology, uh, you say, it can't prove everything. What, what are some of the limitations of archaeology with regards to proving the Bible? Well, first of all, we, we can never expect archaeology to provide us with 100% corroboration of any historical narrative from the past because things get destroyed, things get lost, and very little is actually excavated in terms of what is out there under the ground. Mm. So we've, we've only excavated a small, small percentage of what could be done if we had all the time and the, the manpower and the funding and so forth. So we have to have somewhat limited expectations, but archaeology also cannot speak to things like prophecy 
or miracles since we can't reproduce that. Sure, it can, it can give us records of people saying that they saw this event happen, uh, but, but we can't prove the supernatural through archaeology. We can just demonstrate that this historical event or person or place existed and occurred. So, so what's it like on an archaeological dig? I mean, what's, what's involved? You got shovels, you got picks, uh, you got broom. I mean, what, what do you do when you show up at a site? So if it's a new site, then you would start out by doing a survey and then you would mark out locations or squares where you were intending to dig that season. And then you would, you would clear off the topsoil, maybe weeds and uh, modern garbage, things like that. And you start doing your actual digging. And yeah, you're using things like pickaxes and different types of shovels if you're trying to move a lot more dirt and not, you're not actually digging, like, say, an ancient floor or anything with real archaeological material in it. Now, how do you know that, though? Because, like, you don't just show up and go, oh, I think I'm just going to pick this spot. You've got something that tells you this spot, but you can't just start with a bulldozer because you may be digging up something that's really fragile. Right. But you may have to go down... I don't know, 20 feet, 30 feet, 100 feet, and you don't want to be doing that with a, with a shovel, or do you? So we have indicators of where to dig. As far as, far as like an ancient city, you can be certain of where that's located because there's a lot of pottery scatter, ancient pottery scatter, sometimes even coins or other artifacts on the surface. Uh, oftentimes, some of the remains of buildings will also be visible on the surface or at least the contours of it. So you know, I'm in an ancient city or town. This is an archeological site. I'm going to find something. But at the same time, you may dig down five or 10 feet before you get to really anything other than some broken pottery and dirt. What are some of the archeological finds that uh, have particularly excited you and made you think, I want to keep doing this. This is, this is awesome. This is, this is proving the book I believe is true. There are two examples that I like to talk about from the Old Testament, especially that really turned the tide and changed the minds of a lot of academics on certain characters and books. So uh, the first was quite some time ago, but in the book of Daniel, there is mention of this King Belshazzar in Babylon right before the Persians take over the city. And for a long time, there was no other known mention of Belshazzar outside of the book of Daniel. And so scholars who were skeptical of the Old Testament or the book of Daniel would say, look, here's just another piece of evidence showing us that Daniel is a fictional story that was written hundreds of years later. And then they found these two Babylonian documents uh, one which talked about the last king of, of Babylon, Nabonidus, who went away from Babylon, and it says that he entrusted the kingship to his oldest son and heir. And then, and then another inscription that tells us that the firstborn son and heir of Nabonidus, his name was Belshazzar. And so suddenly we had this archaeological evidence that demonstrated the book of Daniel was exactly right on all that and so that, you know, that changed quite a few things. Wow, accurate. And did you say there was another one? Yeah, there's another Old Testament one. This was much more recent, and it was in 1993. It's called the Tel Dan Stele. So up to that point, say over the past decade or so, a lot of archaeologists and historians were starting to 
say that, that David was a fictional character because we had no mention of him outside of the Bible. But then in 1993, they found this, this broken stele at the site of Dan in northern what's, Israel. What's a stele? A stele is a monumental, usually stone inscription, or uh, sometimes it just has artwork on it, but usually it's inscribed with writing. And they'd often use these to commemorate uh, some great event or sometimes set up as a boundary marker or uh, in, in religion also. So this particular one was to commemorate an event, a victory of the Arameans over Israel. And in one section, it talks about some kings of Israel that these Arameans defeated. And then it says that they're from the house of David. So that, that was a way of saying the dynasty of David. And there was this 9th century BC stele of the, the country of Aram that was acknowledging David was the founder of their dynasty of Israelite kings. Mm. And so right away then, people had to change their ideas on the historicity of David. I can't wait to talk more about this. When we come back, uh, Dr. Titus Kennedy is gonna be taking us through some of the most compelling archeological evidence that validates biblical claims. So don't go anywhere. Welcome back. I'm here with Dr. Titus Kennedy discussing biblical archaeology and its importance to the Christian faith. Titus, uh, there are people today who would assert that Jesus Christ was not a real person, that he never lived, that he didn't even exist, even though Jesus is the one who split time in two. We have B.C. and A.D., and that's divided over the birth and the life of this man, Jesus Christ. From an archaeological perspective, what, is, what do Christian scholars and non-Christian scholars generally believe is true about the life of Jesus? They're going to be all over the map, really. But I will say that in academia, as far as ancient historians and archaeologists and biblical scholars go, no one claims that Jesus didn't exist. So that, that is kind of a fringe view out there that mm. somehow has gotten circulated a lot in the public because we do have such a huge amount of evidence for the existence of Jesus as a historical person. But as far as what happened in the Gospels and the life of Jesus, you have a range from everything that's written in the Gospels happened to hardly anything that's written in the Gospels actually mm. happened. Some places, some people, but we don't know the details type of thing. So there's, there's this very skeptical idea that takes Jesus was real, but they don't know much about him. From archeology, span what evidence do we have that tells us that Jesus was a real person who lived on planet Earth? Some of the best archeological historical evidence for the existence of Jesus in the first century would be from ancient manuscripts. So authors, historians, and philosophers. So the outside of the New Testament, okay, we're, we're excluding the Bible here. We could even exclude Christian writings here too. And we have several sources that talk about Jesus as a historical person and who discuss some small aspects of his life, such as his birth and that he was a teacher, he had disciples, that he supposedly performed miracles, uh, that he claimed he was God, that his father was a carpenter, 
that he was on trial before Pontius Pilate during the time of Tiberius, that he was crucified. And, and we can find ancient documents outside of the Bible that document this? Absolutely, yes. So in, in the back of my book, I decided to, to put all those kinds of quotations just in one place so people can quickly reference to that. Because as you said, there are so many people who think that we don't even have evidence for Jesus as a historical person. And unfortunately, this has just kept circulating, even though if you go to the scholars on this who specialize in these things, they won't say that. They will never go that far. So what, what about some of these things? What, what is, uh, what, what's the James Ossuary? What is that? The James Ossuary is something else that I think that we can look at in terms of evidence for the existence of Jesus. But it was also a very controversial artifact. So an ossuary is a bone box and they would bury people and then come back about a year later and collect the bones and put the bones in this box and they'd put it on a shelf. So they could, they could store more burials essentially in a family tomb by doing that. Uh, but the James ossuary was looted from a tomb illegally rather than excavated during a normal archeological excavation. So we don't have all the details about that process that we wish we did. But the, the inscription is what got people really thinking about this because it says uh, in Aramaic, it says, James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. And it's a very, very unique ossuary inscription. It mentions the brother, right? Well, normally they would mention either the father yeah. or the profession or the place where they were from. So of all the ossuary inscriptions that have been found, there's only one other one that mentions the brother and it doesn't mention the father or any of those other things. So it was their only identifier. Mm. And this tells us that the Jesus, the brother Jesus in this case is, is very significant. And there was a statistical study done on names in Jerusalem at that time and basically determined that it could be referring to less than two people. And of course the only James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus, we know about is Jesus Christ. I mean, Josephus even, even mentions that James was the brother of Jesus. So people knew about this relationship. It's from Jerusalem. It's from before 70 AD. Uh, th there's so many things that go together on it that it really seems like... It's, it's a likely candidate. Yeah, that it's an inscription talking about Jesus. Okay, what about some of the locations that we go to when we visit the Holy Land and we say, hey, is this really where Jesus was born? Uh, uh, is this really where uh, he prayed in the garden or, or where he was buried in the tomb? Uh, what do we know about the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem? Was that really where he was born? I would say there's a good chance, yes. So these are, these are places where Byzantine churches were built over historical sites associated with Jesus. And the, these Byzantines, they're early Christians, uh, once Christianity was legalized and they could construct actual churches, they built them at important biblical sites. Mm -hmm. And they, they almost always get the site right when we are able to evaluate things historically and archaeologically. So they're really reliable. Um, the other thing with these Jesus historical sites and churches is that if we go back to the beginning or uh, the early second century, the Romans even knew the locations of these places. So there was an emperor named Hadrian who tried to either 
snuff out the historical memory of Jesus or syncretize it with Roman gods. And he built Roman temples at various places connected to the life of Jesus, including the birthplace. Mm -hmm. So that also tells us that just decades after the time of Jesus, these places were still, they were known and they were well known enough that the Romans actually knew where to build. Hmm. What do we know from archeology span about the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus? The trial of Jesus, I think, is one of the better attested events archeologically, any, anywhere, anytime. So if we look at that narrative of the trial in all four gospels, we have a number of characters that are into play here. So we've got Annas, the previous high priest. We've got Caiaphas, the acting high priest and head of the Sanhedrin. We have Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. We have uh, Herod Antipas, who's the local ruler of Galilee. We have Jesus himself, and we might even throw in Peter there. He's got a, a small role to play. Well, all six of these people are attested archaeologically and in ancient historical documents. And the locations where the trial of Jesus happens are also known. So the arrest, Gethsemane, we know where Gethsemane is. The house of the high priest, we have three good candidates for it. There's one that I think is stronger than the others because archaeology tells us it was actually used by a later priestly family. Then we have the praetorium where Jesus was before Pilate. That has been partially excavated. We know where that is, including Gabbatha and those paving stones John talks about. Uh, and then we have also the place, the meeting place of the Sanhedrin. We know where that is. Those buildings were all destroyed in 70, but we can point to where they are and even probably some of the, the column capital remains there. So just really incredible attestation, I think. Wow, that's awesome. So the birthplace, um, the trial uh, of, of Jesus. Uh, what about the tomb? Do we know where the tomb is? I would say that with over 99% certainty, we do know that the tomb is in what's now the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And this, this goes back to ancient tradition. It goes back to ancient historical writings. Uh, it goes back to archaeology and the uniqueness of this tomb. And you know, we, could, we could talk about a lot of aspects of that, but it's another place where Hadrian built over. In fact, he built this double temple to Jupiter and Venus over it. So this was like the great temple in Jerusalem for the mm -hmm. Romans. And he put it right over where that, that stone, those rock carved tomb of Jesus was. That's right. And that tells you something. That but, was like a double dog marking right there. Yeah, it was the, the, main, the main God of the Romans and the God that Hadrian associated himself mm. with or goddess. But if we look at the tomb itself, it's really unique also. What's left of it is we can tell there, there was carved out of the local limestone and it's, it's in this area that had been transformed into a garden in the first century BC. And then it was used for other tombs because there are actually other first century tombs in that church that you can see today. It had a, a burial bench, like we read in the gospels where they laid the body of Jesus. And it was a single chamber tomb like the gospels also describe. But that is a very unique aspect of the tomb of Jesus. If you look at other tombs of that type around the Jerusalem area, they're all larger. They have multiple rooms because these were family tombs. They were not individual tombs. But nobody reused the tomb of Jesus and it wasn't a family tomb before him, it was new. 
and nobody went in and expanded it. And so it's, it's a really strong argument, I think, even from the, the archaeology and the architecture of the tomb, that this is the right spot. There's something called the Nazareth inscription. What is that, and, and why is it important? That's actually one of my favorite artifacts from the, the time of Jesus and connected to the Gospels. It's a, it's a Roman inscription. It's a Roman edict. Uh, we call it a rescript because it's a letter that the emperor would have written to a particular province or ruler or city, and on it, they make this edict. And so the letter was accepted, and then they inscribed this edict onto stone. So it's a Greek inscription on marble. And it, it turned up in Nazareth about 1878. That's the earliest record we have of it. Again, not in a regular excavation. It, it got onto the antiquities market, but it, its authenticity is not disputed. And on it, it gives this new penalty. It's the death penalty for something that, that was not such a big deal before. And it's for stealing a body out of a specific type of tomb, a stone-sealed sepulcher tomb, and stealing a body with wicked intent. And if, if you get caught doing that or they find out you did that, then it was the death penalty. So it really seems like the emperor, and, and it appears that it, it was the emperor Claudius, just several years after the life of Jesus, had heard about the story of the resurrection Probably he had heard the Roman soldier version that we see in Matthew 28, 11 through 15, where they claim the disciples stole the body of Jesus. So that's spreading around, but Christianity is spreading all over and people are saying Jesus resurrected and he wants to put an end to this. So he makes sure that nothing like this ever happens again. And maybe it's a little retroactively too. That is, if they find out that the disciples stole the body of Jesus, they could be killed for that. They could be executed for that. So it's, it's a very interesting artifact. You know, there's some different interpretations, but it's definitely worth looking at. That, that is so cool. After the break, uh, let's talk more about archaeological discoveries that validate what we already know to be true from Scripture. We're back with archaeologist Dr. Titus Kennedy, and we've been spending time looking at some of the most compelling archaeological evidences for the life of Jesus. Well, I want to go back now even further into the scriptures and look at what discoveries have been made from Old Testament times. Um, Dr. Kennedy, um, when, when we look at archaeology and we hear about the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, it sounds very sort of mystical and ancient, but what are the Dead Sea Scrolls? How are they found and why are they important? Well, the Dead Sea Scrolls for some people have been the most significant archeological discovery connected to the Bible. Now, I would say that in one way this is correct if we're talking about ancient manuscripts because the Dead Sea Scrolls are our oldest manuscripts of the Old Testament books. And before they were found, our oldest manuscripts were from about the 10th century AD, as far as Hebrew manuscripts. We had some older Greek translations, but these, these pushed it back more than a thousand years. So incredibly important in terms mm. of the text of the Bible and also showing that the Old Testament hasn't changed over the centuries, that they were copying these texts very, very precisely. 
So that's, that's a very important aspect of it. Uh, they were discovered by accident, actually, you know, initially. And then some, some other texts were discovered intentionally when archaeologists went to find more. But they were discovered, the story goes, by a shepherd boy who was throwing rocks to get his sheep to go where he wanted them to. And he, he hit a clay jar and heard this sound. And so he went to look at it. And inside this jar, apparently, were a bunch of the scrolls. Hmm. So they took them back to their camp, and they knew that, that they were worth something, but they didn't know exactly what they were. And ended up uh, buyers on the antiquities market, got a hold of them, and scholars, some scholars realized what they were and how important they were. And eventually they, they were bought back uh, by the government of Israel. And so now most of them are in the Shrine of the Book in the Israel Museum. Um, as part of the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, I've heard of something called the Great Isaiah Scroll. Uh, what is that and what makes that part of the scroll so important? Yeah, that, that is one of the most incredible scrolls and one of the most important ones. It's the entire book of Isaiah. First of all, it's incredible that the whole thing is preserved like that. So a lot of the books, we don't have every verse. You know, the, the scrolls have been damaged and we're, we might be missing large sections uh, we actually don't have the book of Esther, for example, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, although we have parts of every other book. But the, the Great Isaiah Scroll is also one of the oldest, uh, maybe even the oldest of the Dead Sea Scrolls. When radiocarbon dating was done on it, they placed it around 300 BC or so. And some of the new calibrations for radiocarbon dating might, might even push it back to as early as 350 BC. So we're talking about, this is getting really close to the time when the Old Testament was, was written. So last books were written in the fifth century BC. We're talking the fourth century BC here, very, very close. And this, this scroll, of course, contains prophecies also about Jesus. But we have, we have the scroll from more than 300 years before Jesus lived. And so you can't, fabricate that prophecy and there's no there's no argument that scholars can make they, they've got to try to come up with some other explanation so very important for the text of the bible for the historicity and for the prophecy one of the biggest stories one of the biggest events in biblical history is the great exodus the great exodus of the jewish people out of egypt what archaeological evidence if any do we have for the exodus this is one of those things in the Old Testament and the Bible that is really considered to be myth in mainstream circles and in secular scholarship. And in their view, it was settled a long time ago. And so they don't really think about doing new research into the issue. But there is, in fact, a lot of archaeological evidence that points to the Exodus. And we have things like Papyrus Brooklyn that attests to people with biblical Hebrew names as servants in Egypt before the time of the Exodus. Uh, we have other interesting evidence like the cities that are, that are mentioned in Exodus. We know that they were in existence at that time and they were occupied by Semitic slaves, which would include the Hebrews, and that uh, parts, parts of these places even seem to have been abandoned around the time of the Exodus. So is there any evidence archeologically that contradicts the, the, uh, the assertion that the Exodus took place? 
I would say no. Really, the arguments that you're looking at are arguments from absence of evidence. If you read scholars who don't believe the Exodus happened, their main points are going to be things like, there's no evidence of Israelites or Hebrews in Egypt before the Exodus. There's no evidence of the events of the Exodus. There's no evidence of the wandering of the Israelites in Sinai. And, and often they would even say, like, there's no evidence of the incursion, the movement of these people into Canaan and the conquest. And so they're, they're all going off of, we don't have the evidence. We haven't seen it. It's absent. Well, you can't, you can't prove or demonstrate that an event didn't happen by a lack of archaeological evidence because you might find it later. And, and in this case, I think we have found quite a bit. You can say we don't know from that, but you need contradictory evidence to say, no, this is not the story that happened. Okay, so there, there's a claim out there uh, that I want you to debunk it or, or, or verify it if you can about some ancient Egyptian chariot wheels at the bottom of the Dead Sea. No, those aren't, those aren't ancient Egyptian chariot wheels. So unfortunately, that's been circulating around the internet for quite some time. But no, no Egyptian chariot wheels found there yet. You know, maybe if people keep looking in a lot of different possible locations of that crossing, maybe we'll find some, some remnant of the army, but we haven't yet. Okay, what about the story of Jericho and the walls coming crashing down? What does archaeology tell us about that? So Jericho is one of the most important sites in terms of establishing that a conquest actually happened, that the Israelites came into the Promised Land and the events that are written in Joshua occurred. Now Jericho is another one of those that many skeptical scholars like to say, this didn't happen, it's a, it's a mythical account. And, and some of them actually would say it's a contradictory account. That is that what's found at Jericho contradicts the biblical narrative. But in fact, it corroborates it really well. So one, we know where Jericho is located. So Jericho has been found. It was, it was under uh, existence in ancient times. Mm -hmm. the, the second thing we look at is the manner of destruction. The walls fell down, right? And then the city got burned. Well, if you go and you look at the archaeology of Jericho, the final Bronze Age city, the walls fell down upon themselves and kind of formed this ramp so you could walk up into the city. And then there's a massive fire destruction layer over the whole place. So that, that fits with the way that the story wow. is told. And then there's all this all these pots, these big storage jars full of grain. So the people didn't loot the city also, which is another component of the city and the timing, the time of year too. And so really then what it comes down to is a debate over when did that happen? So an earlier excavator of Jericho, John Garstang, he, he excavated extensively there and he said that it looked like from the archeology, span it was destroyed about 1400 BC which he then connected with Joshua. Then a later archeologist, Kathleen Kenyon went there and she actually found a lot of really interesting stuff, but she said that it was destroyed earlier, like in 1550 BC, and so it had nothing to do with the Israelites. But if we go back and look at some of the specific archeological material, we can say that it was about 1400 BC in the time of Joshua, 
Uh, there's things like Egyptian scarab seals of pharaohs from that time. Uh, the last one is a, a pharaoh, Amenhotep III, who reigned around 1400. No pharaohs after him. The pottery that's discovered there, some, some special kind of exotic wares we can date between 1500 and 1400 BC. And then there's a gap. There's that destruction. There's a gap. So it really seems like a very strong site in terms of establishing the historical reliability of the Bible and the book of Joshua here. Wow. That is so cool. I, I find all this just so fascinating. Are there any other uh, locations, stories that can be validated by archaeology that, that, that you find particularly interesting? Yeah, I think one of the most interesting stories, and, and again, one of the best attested ones from the Old Testament, is the story of Hezekiah and Sennacherib when the Assyrians came and assaulted Judah and Jerusalem. So we have a pretty long narrative in the Bible about this and, and the events leading up to it, all sorts of characters involved, whether it's a, a Babylonian king or whether it's Hezekiah or it's Sennacherib or it's generals and so forth. Cities like Lachish and Azekar are mentioned and then Jer Jerusalem. And if we go there and we dig up, say, Lachish, we see that the Assyrians formed a siege ramp and they destroyed the city and they killed a bunch of people. Uh, they even made stone carved reliefs that they put in their palace in Nineveh depicting that siege and destruction of Lachish with, with the name there. And then they talk about the whole campaign against Judah in their official annals. It's called the Sennacherib Prisms. So they wrote in cuneiform the account of all these military activities that he did. And he mentions Hezekiah. He mentions the siege in Jerusalem. He mentions that he subdued the other towns in Judah. So all this stuff, you know, all these characters, all these places, all the events of the battle. The one thing that the Assyrians don't mention is when they were besieging Jerusalem and they failed to take the city. When, when all those officers and mighty warriors got killed. They, they just stop mm. at the siege and don't talk about that because it was typical for ancient cultures like that to not recount their, their losses, their embarrassments, their failures. But we've got everything else in that whole story is, is corroborated archaeologically. Wow. This just gets me so excited for all of the archaeological treasures that have yet to be found. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with Dr. Titus Kennedy right after the break. Welcome back. Uh, we've been having a fascinating discussion with Dr. Titus Kennedy about the ancient world and how archaeology deepens and broadens our understanding of the world of the Bible. Um, Dr. Kennedy, what is it about the future of archaeology that excites you? Oh, we just have so much left to discover. I mean, we talked about earlier that just a fraction of what's under the ground there has actually been excavated. So there's a huge potential for new discoveries, new understandings, and we're also developing or utilizing more technology to make more discoveries and make things more efficient so that we can find more and, and understand things better. Yeah, because there's so many things that still need to be discovered. I can think of the Tower of Babel. Could we find that? Um, could we find Noah's Ark one day? Uh, there's all sorts of things. What about, what about technology? As we move forward with our ability to see through um, 
you know, we've got, we have metal detectors that can sort of see through to find, you know, metal objects in your knee at the airport or whatever. Is there stuff that can help us find archaeological uh, artifacts in the dirt? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And archaeology is interesting because it adopts so many tools and technology from other fields. Right. And so people kind of come up with an idea like, all right, they use this for this. Maybe we can use an archaeology. Let's try it. And sometimes it turns out great. Uh, for example, you mentioned metal detectors. Well, metal detectors can be really helpful in, in excavations in locating things like coins, especially. Now, ancient coins are often really small. Sometimes they're caked with dirt and you might miss them just digging by hand. Some people have really good eyes, but others, you're gonna miss some of them. But with a metal detector, you're gonna be able to detect where that is mm. and go and isolate it and dig it out and, and mark the location. So those are really helpful in one regard. We talked about uh, visual things. So in the past, there was use of ground penetrating radar at some archeological sites. It's had mixed results, but depending on the soil, it can be really helpful and show us that there's some kind of structures underneath there. And so it, it gives us a clue as to, I should probably dig right here rather than over there because I'm not getting any reading over there. And then there's uh, something called LIDAR that has begun to be used even more recently by archeologists and this sends down uh, light beams, lasers, that then refract and, and bounce back up to the sensor. And it can essentially see through things like uh, really heavy vegetation. So in jungle type of areas, they've made really incredible discoveries like Mayan cities, huge Mayan cities that were unknown before. Or just for you know your, your archaeology sites in the Middle East that they might be covered by a bunch of weeds and bushes and things like that, and you wouldn't normally see anything if you're just walking around, but it shows you the the contours there underneath all that, and you say, oh, well we have this perfectly rectangular building with these column-looking things. Let's go excavate there. Right. What's the big find everyone's looking for right now? I mean, is there a holy grail out there in the world of arche biblical archaeology? Maybe it is the holy, gra holy grail that you're looking for. Um, tell me somebody thinks that they are close to finding Noah's Ark. Well, there's always groups looking for Noah's Ark, and they always think that they're close. So far, nobody has found anything definitive yet. Uh, but there are some expeditions that have been working on it. So Mount Ararat is probably the main candidate for where the Ark would have landed. And so there have been different explorations up there at or near the summit, even, even some digging in through the, the snow and the ice. Uh, nothing yet, but who knows, maybe in the future they'll find something. So what new projects do you have on the horizon? Well, I'm hoping to continue an excavation at a site called Kerbet Etel, which is typically associated with the eye mentioned in Genesis and Joshua. And then I'm also uh, looking to do a new project in the, the place that the Bible calls the, the kingdom of Ararat or the kingdom of Urartu that's in present day Armenia. And you know, perhaps in the future, something in Jordan. We'll see, there's some, some possible options there. Is there a particular artifact that would be a dream come true for you to discover? Is there something that you think, I'm going to be the guy that's going to find this? 
Uh, I would be happy with anything that is significantly connected to the Bible. So I've got a few different historical issues that I'm particularly interested in that I hope I can find some archaeology to clarify those, you know, things with uh, the books of Exodus or Joshua or Genesis. Uh, obviously, the Gospels are of particular interest to me as well. So, you know, see what happens, and I'll be happy if, if we find anything that really contributes to our understanding. What would you want the family of faith to understand with regard to the importance of archaeology connected to the Bible? I want them to understand that it is something that can be really useful and practical for the average Christian. It's not just for people that are into adventure. It's not just for academics. It's something that can help to enrich your understanding of the Bible because it gives you a view of the ancient world, the, the ancient context of the Bible, so you can better visualize it and you can put your place, yourself in that place when you're reading the text. You can get more from it, you can understand it more. Uh, but also the other component we talked about where it demonstrates the reliability of the Bible. And so we don't have to be always questioning the Bible without any answers. We can question what's the evidence for this. Well, very often there's something that's been found that can help answer that question. I know you've got a book out. Can you tell us a little bit about the book and uh, um, what, what it offers people? Sure. Uh, I've got two on biblical archaeology out. One is called Excavating the Evidence for Jesus. And in that one, I go through chronologically the life of Jesus in the Gospels and all the archaeology that is connected to that, whether it's the places, it's the people, it's the events. And I try to give people a, a broad and yet comprehensive view of the discoveries that inform us about that period and also show the reliability of the Gospels. Uh, my other book is called Unearthing the Bible, and this looks just at artifacts, uh, little objects that connect to all the different periods of biblical history, both Old and New Testament. So if there's someone out there who's watching, uh, or maybe a parent or a grandparent uh, of someone that they know just wants to be an archaeologist, uh, do you go to school for this? I mean, if, if someone wants to be an archaeologist, how do you get started? You, you do go to school for it. You go to school and you volunteer on archaeological And you practice digging. And, yeah, and do internships. <laughs> so it's, it's not the easiest career to break into, but I think it's really rewarding. And most people that are in archaeology really enjoy their career. And it's, it's needed. We don't have enough people in the field, so... I would say if you're interested in it, give it a try. I really encourage you to, to see if it's a fit for you. If people want to find out more about uh, your books and more about your work and the projects that are coming up, where can they find out more? Uh, you can go to Amazon to take a look at my books and uh, to see some overviews of that and bio. You can go to my publisher, Harvest House, uh, Biola University, where I teach adjunct and uh, Discovery Institute. Our conversation has made me think of the times where I've gone hiking up in the mountains with my wife and found seashells 
in the sides of mountains that's buried under these layers of sediment. And I've always thought to myself, how in the world did these things get up here? Did birds bring these things up here? And this is, we're talking like maybe 1,500 feet above sea level because the ocean's right down there. And uh, it made me start digging. And I remember as a little kid thinking, wow, this is, this is so cool. You can dig down and find stuff like this. And uh, as an adult and as a Christian, uh, when I find stuff like that, it does make me think of how much more of the Bible's truths are hidden underneath the dirt that, that need to be unearthed. So I'm so, so fascinated by all that you're doing. Hi, I'm Kirk Cameron. Thanks for listening to this episode of Takeaways. If you love the conversations that we're having, please follow or subscribe to this podcast to never miss any of this great content. And please consider leaving a positive rating and a review to help others like you discover this show.